Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the 2020 lead, a key milestone for the Biden presidency today. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris today are receiving their first presidential daily brief. That's the highest level of intelligence about the threats facing the United States and its allies. It's a vital step as President-elect Biden prepares to take office in less than two months. The transition process, of course, delayed by outgoing President Trump's refusal to accept that he lost. Outgoing President Trump is continuing his baseless lies about the election, even as Chris Krebs, the former cybersecurity czar at the Department of Homeland Security, is now publicly debunking many of the Trump team's allegations. But it is not just Krebs. Official after official, Democrat, Republican, nonpartisan experts finding themselves responding to the deranged claims made by President Trump and his team. Here's Georgia election official Gabe Sterling, a Republican, earlier today. The ridiculous things claimed in some of these lawsuits are just that. They're insanity. It's fever dream, made up, internet cabal. I can't, however many words I can use to say how crazy some of these things are. Nonetheless, President Trump and his team continue to push forward these lies with state and local officials doing the lion's share of standing up for the facts and the truth. And congressional Republicans essentially silent with a handful of exceptions. Take Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, who tweeted, President Trump simply flooding the zone with baseless conspiracies again. Retiring Congressman Paul Mitchell of Michigan tweeting, oh, my God. President Trump, please, for the sake of our nation, please drop these arguments without evidence or factual basis. Hashtag stop the stupid. Meantime, President-elect Joe Biden is moving forward with building out his administration. Today, Biden announced key economic picks for his administration, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. For the first time since winning the election, Joe Biden receiving the president's daily brief today the one-of-a-kind collection of classified intelligence and security threats facing the U.S. For Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who also received the briefing, it's the biggest milestone yet on their way to the White House. President Trump finally signed off on the move last week, despite repeatedly refusing to concede defeat. We're going to build an economy that leads the world. It comes as Biden today continues filling out his cabinet, surrounding himself with history-making picks. Former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, who would be the first woman to serve as Treasury Secretary. Cecilia Rouse, a Princeton economist and veteran of the Clinton and Obama administration, as the first woman of color to lead the Council of Economic Advisers. And Neera Tandon, the first woman of color and South Asian to run the Office of Management and Budget. Biden also announcing his White House communications operation, and for the first time with women in each of the senior roles. Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Communications Director Kate Bedingfield, Senior Advisor and Chief Spokesperson for the Vice President Simone Sanders. All are among the women leading the team. Hi, everyone. 
Saki, a veteran of the Obama administration, is already overseeing confirmation of Biden's nominees in the Senate, which for now is controlled by Republicans. We don't need a fabricated crisis in the Senate, and I don't think that the American people are going to tolerate that if there's a refusal to move forward with qualified nominees. While there is only one president at a time, sharing the document known as the PDB with Biden underscores how Trump's time in power is drawing to a close. While hardly a stranger to classified briefings, today marked the first time Biden received one in nearly four years. It could have something related to a recent uh, terrorist threat or engagements with China or, and Russia, maybe uh, North Korea uh, nuclear developments. He received the briefing at his home outside Wilmington, where he spent the day out of sight, recovering from a weekend foot injury that aides say he received while playing with his dog Major. His doctor says Biden will have a walking boot for several weeks to treat the hairline fracture. Now, we are expected to see President-elect Biden tomorrow here for the first time, likely with that walking boot. He will be introducing members of his economic team. Janet Yellen, of course, has received wide praise from both sides. Not all of his nominees have. Neera Tannen, for example, has taken criticism from progressives and from some Republicans who say she will not be confirmed. That, of course, is why control of the Senate is so important. But, Jake, one thing is clear. Mr. Biden's presidency, he knows, will rise or fall on this economic recovery. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. Thanks so much. In Arizona today, more deranged conspiracies from Rudy Giuliani representing the president at what can only be described as a publicity stunt. You'll notice that Giuliani never introduces these claims in an actual court of law where you are not allowed to tell lies and you have to present actual evidence to back up your claims. It was fitting then that shortly after Giuliani's event, the state of Arizona certified its elections results, confirming that Joe Biden won in the state by a margin of 10,457 votes. As Caitlin Collins reports, President Trump remains deep in denial, even lashing out now at his former allies. Holed up in the White House again today, President Trump had no public events on his schedule as he continued to stew about the election. Though no legal challenge, recount, or audit has changed the outcome, Trump insisted there is no way we lost this election and trained his anger on Republican officials once considered allies. The governor's done nothing. He's done absolutely nothing. I'm ashamed that I endorsed him. Trump's latest target is Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, who Trump called hapless today for not using non-existent emergency powers to overrule his, quote, obstinate secretary of state. Governor Kemp rarely pushes back on Trump, but he did in a statement today where his office said Georgia law prohibits the governor from interfering in elections and he has no such authority. But Trump isn't just lashing out at his own party. He's also going after the person he put in charge of securing the election, then fired for securing the election. There is no foreign power that is flipping votes. There's no domestic actor flipping votes. I did it right. We did it right. This was a secure election. After Chris Krebs appeared on 60 Minutes last night, Trump complained the show never asked him for comment and claimed the 2020 election was, quote, the least secure ever. His false claims about the election haven't stopped there. The president also alleged that world leaders have questioned the U.S. election, despite how many have congratulated President-elect Joe Biden. You have leaders of countries that call me and say that's the most messed up election we've ever seen. The White House hasn't told reporters about a single call Trump has had with a world leader since the election. 
well, the, pre- the president-elect will be the president-elect when the electors vote for him. While many Senate Republicans have refused to acknowledge President-elect Joe Biden's victory, the one whose committee oversees the inauguration is publicly urging Trump to attend. I think there's a big role for uh, President Trump, and, and I hope he embraces that. Now, Jake, speaking of Republicans who have virtually ignored the president's attacks on the results of the election, the Senate is back in Washington today. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell ignored a question from my colleague Manu Raju on whether he considers Joe Biden to be the president-elect today. Of course, that's not something he's going to be able to ignore much longer, given, as Jeff Zeleny just laid out, Biden is picking his cabinet nominees, and they are going to have to, of course, undergo confirmations by the Senate. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, uh, thanks so much. Let's discuss uh, with our panel here. Abby, I want to start with this uh, incoming Biden-Harris administration, President-elect Biden, facing the, the difficult task of building an administration, trying to appeal to all factions of the Democratic Party, perhaps even bring in some Republicans. Uh, what are the challenges here for Biden? Yeah, I mean, I think you uh, just hit on one of them. It, it's partly about... Uh, making sure that the factions within the Democratic Party are satisfied. The other element of this is just the uncertainty around the United States Senate and what that's going to look like. It very much seems, based on where Biden is going with some of these picks, that, uh, frankly, are people who he worked with in uh, the Obama administration. These are people who are known quantities in Washington, generally speaking. You don't see virtually anyone on uh, on, on this list who is someone out of left field. So it suggests that the Biden administration is preparing for either possibility, that either there will be a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate or there will continue to be a Republican majority, and they need to get uh, some votes across the aisle. So uh, I think that it's uh, probably more so the issue with Senate confirmation, making sure that they can get uh, votes on the Republican side, because I think Democrats still, by and large, right now, are pushing privately, but publicly are kind of holding their fire on most of those picks, with a few exceptions. One of them you saw there, Neera Tanden, who uh, will be nominated for the Office of Management and a Budget position. Oh, yeah, I want to uh, ask Phil about that in a yeah. second, but before I do, Abby, one key position that has yet to be filled is Defense Secretary. Tell us some of the names under consideration. Yeah, so this is one uh, big one. And uh, it it looks like uh, Joe Biden, according to sources, is considering a couple of names, all of them, I think, pretty groundbreaking in their own right. So Michelle Flournoy, who was a top uh, Pentagon official in the Obama administration, she's under consideration. You have Jay Johnson, the Homeland Security Secretary uh, under Obama, also under consideration, and a retired Army General Lloyd Austin, uh, uh, who served uh, as the head of Central Command under the Obama administration during that time. He would need a waiver in order to take on this position. But uh, Jay Johnson, our retired uh, our, uh, Lieutenant Army General Austin, they would both be uh, the first black picks to be uh, homeland, uh, Pentagon uh, secretary if they were picked. And then Michelle Flournoy would be the first uh, woman if she were picked to that position. And, well. and Philip, let's talk about Neera Tandon, Biden's pick to lead the Office of Management and Budget. She, she's been attacked by some progressives, although she seems to be shoring up support among progressives in Congress uh, based on some statements I've seen. But also some Republicans are really going at her. Uh, the communications director for Senator John Cornyn of Texas tweeted, Neera Tandon, who has an endless stream of disparaging comments about the Republican senators whose votes she'll need, stands zero chance of being confirmed. So am I to understand that mean tweets are now important to Republican senators? 
Well, yeah, yeah, I think we can add that to the list of hypocrisies that we're going to see over the course of the next month or so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Neera Tandon is someone who sits at a very uh, unusual space, I think it's safe to say, in the political conversation. She is both uh, broadly uh, disliked by a lot of people on the left wing of the, of the party, of the, of the progressive slash liberal space, uh, for being too centrist. Uh, but she's also been very vocal in her criticism of Republicans, which really gives her a, a long paper trail to the, to the point that you just heard of, of having uh, made disparaging comments, not necessarily unfairly disparaging comments, but certainly critical comments uh, about Republican legislators. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that will be a contentious pick. And I think it will also be a contentious uh, uh, fight simply by virtue of the fact that the Republicans are going to look for some place to fight, right? I mean, you know, so if someone like Janet Yellen, it's harder for Republicans to kick out too much dust than it is for someone like Tandon, where they have a lot of ammunition and it gives them something to really sink their teeth into. But Phil, uh, I mean, uh, you, you just mentioned Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary uh, nominee to be uh, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Chuck Grassley says uh, he believes Yellen will get a favorable review. But he wants to see more information, such as her tax returns. So tax returns are now something important uh, for Republican senators as well. Right, right. So part of the, uh, the process of getting that gig is to actually have to submit your tax return. So there is an element of it, which is it's mandated that she actually has to turn those over. Obviously, though, for Grassley, for Republicans in general, to point to tax returns as something that need to be reviewed before someone is given a senior position within the federal government, there, there's a level of irony there. Uh, and Abby, um, the, the New York Times has a report out uh, on the links between some Biden picks and their ties to consulting and investment firms, uh, which the Times says raises some tricky ethics questions. For example, uh, the Secretary of State picked to be Tony Blinken. He co-founded a group called West Exec Advisors. It's a major consulting uh, firm. Um, is this going to be difficult for Biden to navigate in, in this era when it comes to ethics concerns? You know, that is, I think, one of those areas where in the Trump era, um, I definitely think that there is, um, as you were just discussing some of the uh, hypocrisy in Washington, there's going to be a little bit of that happening here where some of these ethics concerns are probably more resonant for Democrats than they were for Republicans over the last four years. I think Biden can really deal with this early uh, by mandating his own ethics disclosure requirements. Uh, uh, forcing his own nominees to disclose who their clients were, how much they were paid. These are things that they can do voluntarily to get ahead of some of these issues. And in fact, that would be in keeping with a lot of the ethics uh, rules that the, the Obama administration tried to do uh, on certain other issues, including lobbyist rec uh, regulations and other things that they try to do to get ahead of some of these ethics problems. But again, I mean, I think that for Republicans to kick up dust over um, conflicts of interest when it comes to clients of people who are serving in administration, I think, would be uh, a little hip hypocritical considering that they seem to have very little uh, trouble with that over the last four years as well. All right, Abby Phillip and Philip Bump, thank you so much to both of you. Really appreciate it. Could there really be a COVID vaccine by Christmas? A second drug maker just applied for FDA emergency youth authorization. How safe is this vaccine? When might you be able to get one? I'll ask CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta next. Plus, a CNN global exclusive you will see first here on The Lead, revealing documents that show what the Chinese government really knew about the first cases of coronavirus in China and that government's chaotic early response. Stay with us. news in our health lead now. An official for Operation Warp Speed says 100% of Americans who want a vaccine 
will be able to have gotten one by June. This is the latest bit of promising vaccine news. Moderna today is applying for emergency use authorization from the FDA for its vaccine. That pharmaceutical company claims that their vaccine is 94.1% effective and 100% effective at preventing severe COVID cases. CVS and Walgreens say that they are getting ready to be among the first to administer vaccines. And according to Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, vaccines could very well be in the arms of Americans by Christmas. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, good to see you. Um, anyone who wants a vaccine will be able to have gotten one by June, according to Operation Warp Speed. Do you think most people will be vaccinated uh, before then? Uh, yeah, I, I do think that, that you know, you're going to sort of have this uh, ramp up to the number of people becoming vaccinated. What is interesting about uh, the comments made by that official from Operation Warp Speed, uh, uh, people who want the vaccine, that was the caveat, right? So if you look at uh, right now the percentage of people who want it, they say about 60 percent of people want it. Uh, that would require, I did the math on this, some 300 million doses by June to be able to vaccinate the 60 percent of adults who want it. Yeah, obviously, I think, Jake, over time, as people hear the news about the vaccine, as they become more comfortable with it, uh, the percentage of people who want it uh, will likely go up. So, you know, there will probably be this this surge demand that increases over the spring and summer. And that's something Operation Warp Speed, I'm sure, is taking into consideration. We know, Jake, uh, you know, the likely uh, amounts of vaccine will be available by the end of the year. They say some 40 million doses by the end of the year. Two doses, right? So that's 20 million people. And then you can sort of look at how things progress after that. Another 50 million by January, another 60 million by February and March. And I'll also point out, Jake, that that's based on these two vaccines, uh, Pfizer, which we heard about, Moderna, you just mentioned. There may be others by that point as well that get this uh, authorization. Uh, Sanjay, the advisory board for the CDC, they're going to vote tomorrow on the priority list of who gets the vaccine first, uh, along with frontline medical workers. Who will be first in line, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's, it is primarily going to be these uh, healthcare workers who are primarily taking care of COVID patients uh, because, you know, if you, if you start to lose a significant amount of healthcare workers in the middle of this pandemic, that obviously puts a significant strain on the system. So, again, you do the math on this, there's about 20, 21 million healthcare workers who sort of fit that bill. You know, they are likely to be first in line, and that'll be sort of the first phase of this. And again, multiply everything times two in terms of doses needed. So 40 million roughly doses needed for that first phase. And then, Jake, look, I mean, you know, if you start looking at everyone else who'd be considered either essential or vulnerable because of age or pre-existing medical conditions, you're starting to look at, you know, um, well over 200 million people. That's 400 million doses. And that's, you know, later in the spring, probably uh, late spring, early summer, by the time you get to that point. Where will people be able to get the vaccine? And and are they going to have a choice if there are two or three or four different kinds of vaccines available? I've talked to so many people about this exact issue. And 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 it's very interesting because, you know, first of all, we don't have the, the full data yet on these vaccines. There may be some data that says, hey, look, this worked really well for elderly people in terms of inducing immune response. This worked better for for younger people. We we just haven't seen that data yet. That may come out. What we know about these two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, is they're pretty similar vaccines in terms of how they work. So uh, people may not have a choice, but they may not need a choice in that the vaccines are pretty similar. What's interesting, Jake, is that in terms of where the Pfizer vaccine goes, how it's distributed versus Moderna, that may be very well just dependent on your, your resources in terms of, of cold storage. 
something that people have heard a lot about, but the Pfizer vaccine needs to be kept really cold. So that may be for larger cities, for example, cities that have those sorts of resources, larger institutions, whereas the uh, Moderna vaccine, which also needs to be kept cold, but not as cold, that may be more for you know, smaller locations, locations that can sort of handle that sort of vaccine. So it may have nothing to do with the efficacy of the vaccine, just the distribution capabilities of the location. So Dr. Fauci told me a few weeks ago that uh, it's not as though you get vaccinated and then you can just uh, act as though the, the virus is not there. People mm. will still need to wear masks and social distance because it's not a 100 percent effective vaccine, even though it's very high, 95 uh, percent or 94 percent. How soon before we can just start living our normal lives again? Well, you know, I mean, um, I, I think if it means normal, except that you may still need to wear masks at some point, if you go into large gatherings, that would probably be, you know, late summer, early fall, a, a sort of complete sense of normalcy where you're really looking at this in the rearview mirror, maybe, maybe by the end of the year. You know, I mean, I think there's going to be a hangover effect from this for some time, Jake, where people are going to be cautious about the idea of respiratory viruses in large public settings and I talk to arena, you know, uh, people who run large arenas, and they're thinking about this in terms of their own hygienic practices within those large public spaces. So I think we're going to feel this much in the way that, you know, you take your shoes off when you go to the airport and things like that. I think there is going to be a, a sort of hangover effect of this for some time. But I think, you know, once we start seeing the numbers come down, Jake, these awful trends that we see going up, once we start seeing them come down and we get into a containment level, which is about one in 100,000 new infections per day, you know, 3,500 people becoming infected a day instead of, you know, close to 200,000. I think we're going to have a sense of normalcy at that point. And, and uh, as you know, uh, this vaccine news is promising, but we don't have a vaccine yet. And the surge right now is smashing records. Lawmakers around the country still refusing to implement mask mandates. You think that's a mistake? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, there's, you know, this is going to be one of the great sort of, I think, uh, mysteries of this pandemic for me. Certainly, maybe it's easier to understand than I believe, but masks work and the man places where you've had mandates have had decreases in overall virus transmission significantly. You know, we, we, we've reported on this for a long time. There was new data that came out of Kansas. Basically, Kansas tried to put a statewide mask mandate in place. Uh, there were, you know, a certain number of counties that did it and a certain number that didn't. And a month later, Jake, roughly a month later, the counties that put the mandates in place decreased their overall new cases. Just, just flattening it would be huge. To actually decrease it was significant. The places that didn't have mask mandates, it went up. I mean, we, we, we just see this over and over again, and we're going to need to pay attention to this data, certainly over the next several months, because it really matters. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, good to see you as always. Coming up, more than 4 million cases just this month. Up next, why health experts are fearing another deadly explosion of the virus is coming soon. Stay with us. In our health lead today, a staggering 4.3 million coronavirus cases this month in just the United States. That's almost the combined total of the last three months. And another record, 93,000 people are currently hospitalized in the U.S. with coronavirus. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, with huge spikes in travel for the Thanksgiving holiday, the U.S. could be on the brink of yet another surge on top of this already record-breaking surge. Oh, that's that. Sign of strange times. The Denver Broncos just played a wide receiver at quarterback. One regular QB has COVID, three more 
in quarantine. We are nearing almost 200,000 infections a day. I expect we're going to cross that at some point. Soon, maybe fueled by Thanksgiving. Sunday was the busiest air travel day since the pandemic began. We won't really know the impact of that for at least another five or seven days, because that's just the dynamics of this virus. So many people now tired, bored, sick of this. Expecting people to stay at home for 14 days is quite excessive. I mean, I understand the logic behind it. Here's the logic. 15 members of this one Texan family, all sick, after one birthday party. Now I'm in the hospital and can't see my family. More than 93,000 Americans in that same boat in the hospital, the highest that number has ever been. In November alone, four and a quarter million Americans were infected. That's equivalent to the entire populations of Montana, Vermont, Wyoming, and New Mexico put together. 42 states are now above a key threshold. More than 5% of tests are coming back positive. This is what exponential spread of an uncontrolled virus looks like. The U.S. average daily death toll now approaching 1,500. We are in it, and we're not at the end of it. I think by the end of this wave, we'll have many more Americans die than died in World War II. That's the very bad news. Today, there's also that very good news. Moderna's potential vaccine is, they say, 100% effective at preventing severe cases of COVID-19. And next week, an FDA committee meets to assess Pfizer's offering. Does it work? Is it safe? We could be looking at approval within days after that. Moderna is basically one week behind that. We could be seeing both of these vaccines out uh, and getting uh, into people's arms uh, before Christmas. Now, as of this morning across Los Angeles County, the playgrounds are all closed and we've been told we shouldn't mix with anyone outside our immediate household for nearly the next three weeks. We have also, Jake, just heard from the governor of California. He said he is considering measures, including a stay-home order. He calls that drastic, but current modeling suggests that ICU capacity in California could run out Christmas Eve. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in California, thanks so much. One emergency physician in Los Angeles is exhausted and frankly fed up. He writes in an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times that, quote, we're tired of seeing patients who got the virus after their kid's limited birthday party or because they went out to a restaurant dinner with close friends or flew to a celebration in a state that didn't have much COVID, unquote. And Dr. Mark Morocco joins me now live to discuss this. Uh, Dr. Morocco, why did you write this op-ed? Well, we felt like this was a call to action at a time that was really, really important. As Sanjay said in the last piece, we are at the worst part of the monster zombie movie, right? So this is where if we, don't make an, if we don't make a stand and we don't do something, and it's simple stuff that we've been talking about for a long time, that can make the difference between an inconvenient winter and one that is truly disastrous. So the folks who traveled on Thanksgiving, again, with Los Angeles movie metaphors, they're kind of like zombies walking around in our midst. They don't even know that they've been infected. And if they don't quarantine, if they don't stay away, they don't mask, they don't wash their hands, avoid crowds, we're going to have that surge on top of a surge. And before the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines could come in, we're going to have a terrible time and lose a lot of people. So the Thanksgiving surge uh, it has not hit your hospital yet uh, in all likelihood. But tell us what it's like in your emergency department right now. 
Well, you know, we're back in that sort of anticipatory sort of raw nerve uh, moment where we're seeing numbers tick up, but we haven't had the big wave hit us. So uh, all of us are, are asking really a pledge for unity in these ununited states because the virus is so widespread. It's like we're all grass and it's a fire burning from sea to shining sea. This is the time now to help us help you, because even though we're better at treating coronavirus than we have been ever, if we don't have a bed to put you in, you're in a lot of trouble. I want to read another quote from your op-ed. You write, uh, quote, we're eight months into COVID. World War II lasted six years and a day. The Great Depression lasted 10 years. The 1918 flu lasted two years and two months. Are we really that soft, that careless, that selfish? What do you think? Are we? Well, I think we've had this trouble. We haven't had a, a wartime leader and a unified message. And now we have a president and a president-elect. My fantasy is that they would both finally get together and say, look, we need to fight this war. We need to use all of the things that we have at our, in our grasp. And we're not asking the public to do difficult things, to take expensive drugs or to do something dangerous like get in a boat and go fight someplace else. We're just asking for simple masking, social distancing, use your head, be smart, avoid crowds and avoid sick people for the next six months. Help us take the edge off of this so that we can get on to the next level of our life. We all want to get back to the way we used to live our lives. A record number of Californians are, are currently hospitalized with this virus. Data uh, suggests that, that the most patients are hospitalized in your county, Los Angeles County. How is this changing the way you make decisions in the ER? Are you turning away people because you don't have room for them? Well, we're not at that, that point yet, and, and we, we hope that that'll never happen. We are seeing everybody like the virus, we don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, whether you live in the, the center of the Midwest or you live on the coasts. We're going to take great care of you if you come to RER. And I think that culture is baked into emergency and ICU and critical care people and nurses across the country. Um, but we really don't want you to get to that point. And, and a little prevention can really, really help us do it. We don't want to get to the point where we have to make those kind of decisions that are quite frankly, unthinkable as a doctor. Los Angeles County's new stay-at-home order starts today. It bans all public and private gatherings of people outside one single household. And some Californians are, are really angry about these new restrictions. What would you say to them? Well, we're human beings. We understand the anger. We feel the same thing. But, you know, for instance, if you own a restaurant, your anger shouldn't be at the, at the health people and the county people who are telling you the truth about the limited amount that we know about fighting this virus. Your anger should be at the virus and really at the federal government. Um, this is a time when federal money can help the people who have those jobs who are stuck at home, help them stay at home and still be able to pay their rents. This is a time when you can help restaurant owners um, get their people through. This is a time you can't fight a big global war like we did in, in World War II without a lot of federal money and a lot of support. And so um, we want people to unify uh, and to come together as a country, really become a United States and to at least be united for the next six to eight weeks, because the sooner we get through this, the, f the faster we'll get back to open mm -hmm. restaurants, our life, the way we love to live it. All right, Dr. Mark Morocco, uh, thank you so much. And thanks for, for what you do. We appreciate it. Coming up, secret documents from City Zero, the confusion and delays from inside China as coronavirus began to spread around the world, now revealed. It's a CNN global exclusive. You'll see it first on The Lead. That's next.
We have some breaking news for you in our world lead. CNN has obtained leaked documents from inside China, documents that reveal the missteps and the chaos of the Chinese government's early response to the coronavirus pandemic. The documents are from Hubei province, home to the city of Wuhan, where the pandemic is thought to have started. They show authorities released misleading public data on the number of deaths and the number of cases. They took, on average, three weeks to diagnose a new case and much more. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is breaking the story for us right now. An unprecedented leak of internal Chinese documents to CNN reveals for the first time what China knew in the opening weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, but did not tell the world. A whistleblower who said they worked inside the Chinese healthcare system shared the documents with CNN online, which show a chaotic local response from the start. This lack of transparency uh, sort of also contributed to the crisis. Seeing information uh, in black and white uh, was very revealing and instructive. CNN has verified them with half a dozen experts, a European security official, and using complex digital forensic analysis looking at their source code. The documents provide a number of key revelations about the province of Hubei, home to the epicenter city of Wuhan. Firstly, some of the death tolls were off. The worst day in these reports is February the 17th, where these say 196 people who were confirmed cases died. But that day, they only announced 93. China was also circulating internally bigger, more detailed totals for new cases in Hubei. For one day in February, recording internally nearly 6,000 new cases. Some diagnosed by tests, others clinically by doctors and some suspected because of symptoms and contacts, but all pretty serious. Yet publicly that day, China reported nationwide about 2,500 new confirmed cases. Arrests were downplayed in an ongoing tally of suspected cases. That meant patients that doctors had diagnosed as being seriously ill sounded like they were in doubt. They did later improve the criteria. If China had been more uh, transparent and also more uh, aggressive in responding, clearly they would have had an impact on how much the virus spread in Wuhan, in Hubei, in China, and perhaps uh, to the rest of the world as well. Strikingly, the documents reveal one possible reason behind the discrepancy in the numbers. A report from early March says it took a staggering 23 days on average from when someone showed COVID-19 symptoms to when they got a confirmed diagnosis. That's three weeks to officially catch each case. This information seems to be very surprising to me because normally it would take you know, just a couple of days. You're making policy today based on information that already is three weeks old. Perhaps the most remarkable revelation concerns early December, the moment when COVID-19 first emerged in China. Startlingly, these documents reveal there was an enormous spike in influenza cases in Hubei, right when studies have shown the very first known patients were infected with COVID-19. 20 times the number of flu cases compared to the same week the year before. Experts said it could have flooded the hospital system with patients sick from flu-like symptoms, making it harder to spot the first cases of COVID-19. The documents don't link the outbreak to coronavirus's origins directly, but they show flu patients were regularly screened, and many did not have a known flu virus strain, leaving open the possibility they were sick with COVID-19. 
The spike right in, uh, in Wuhan was very unusual right, compared to previous years. You know, so that would raise a, a red flag. It was very, very sizable. Uh, it's clear that the Chinese uh, virologists can make precise diagnoses of influenza. But in retrospect, you have to wonder, was there some COVID in there masquerading as influenza? The documents also show the flu outbreak was biggest that first week in December, not in Wuhan, but in two other cities nearby in Hubei. All valuable information in the hunt for where the disease came from. Chinese officials have said the outbreak began here, the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan in mid-December. And despite Western accusations that it has limited its cooperation with the WHO investigation into the virus's origins, China has insisted it has been as transparent as possible over the coronavirus. For some time now, in order to shift the blame, she said, some US politicians have constantly used the pandemic and other issues as a pretext to smear and demonize China and sow lies and misinformation about China. This will, of course, seriously mislead citizens of the United States and some other Western countries' understanding of the truth of China's fight against the epidemic. China's foreign ministry and health officials in Beijing and Wuhan have not responded to our requests for comment. This disease has killed nearly one and a half million people, about a fifth of known deaths in America. These documents are rare, clear and open window into what China knew all along, trying to appear in control while a local outbreak turned into a global pandemic. And Nick Payton Walsh joins us now. Nick, this is a major exclusive you uncovered. How rare is it to get this kind of window into China's response to a crisis of this magnitude? Yeah, Jake, this sort of detail is very rare. These are the details which China chose, it seems, not to share, at least in full. And it's pretty clear that it would have been, if shared in real time, as China discovered these problems, very helpful in terms of other countries knowing what to do. Now, to some degree, this it doesn't you know, confirm some of the crazier conspiracy theories that are thrown around about what China did. Was it a lab leak or man-made? They were simply facing the things that other countries ended up facing themselves. But they faced it first. And so you have to ask ask the question, if they were more open, if they were more transparent and shared their mistakes, could other countries have had an easier ride? And what implications might these documents have on the Chinese government and its image as other countries try to investigate the origins of this virus and how it got to, to their shores? Yeah, I mean, whatever you think about the World Health Organization, they're the ones spearheading the investigation into the origins of the virus. And that's important because we need to know how this started. The planet's always changing and we want to be sure that it doesn't happen again, maybe worse, in our lifetime. So it's important that obviously they open up and everyone gets to share their scientific knowledge around where this came from. But there's a broader issue, too, for China's image, because I think it's fair to say they've put their authoritarian system forward now as the most capable, that was able to move fast, swift, decisively, without all the dithering over masks you see in democracies and able to get a grip on this. Well, that may be true now and that they're doing reasonably well, it seems, the image they give off internally. But more broadly, it looks like at the start, they were a bit of a mess, frankly. They miscounted, they misdiagnosed, uh, they misinformed people about what was really going on inside there. So essentially, the vision you get is of a country struggling like everybody else, but with this strange impulse, it seems at times, just to try and bury some of the bad news. I have to say it was remarkable insight. Some of the things here, I think many scientists would be very interested to learn about. Yes, and, and some Confirmation of our suspicions that they've been undercounting their fatalities and their cases significantly. Nick Payton Walsh, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Remote-controlled guns, a hit square, and a self-destructing car. Extraordinary details now coming out about how Iran believes its top nuclear mind was taken out. In the world lead, we are learning new details of what the Iranian government says was an elaborate high-tech operation used to assassinate its top nuclear scientist. According to the Iranian government, the killers used a remote-controlled machine gun and a self-destructing car in last Friday's ambush. Iran is blaming Israel for the attack and is vowing revenge, though, of course, any evidence of culpability has not yet been released by the Iranian government. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live in Jerusalem. And Oren, set the scene for us. How does the Iranian government believe this was carried out? Well, there are slightly different versions of events between Iranian news media, both official and semi-official, but they all go something like this. Iran's top nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, was traveling in a bulletproof car with his wife and a security convoy. When his car came under fire, he then got out of his car, at which point he was shot and killed. The, the weapon that was used to shoot and kill him, according to Iranian news media, a remote control gun that then exploded, destroying the evidence in that Nissan there. Now, Iran has blamed Israel for this, saying they have found Israeli logos and imagery on the weapons or the remnants of it that indicate that Israel was behind this, though they have so far put none of that forward or shown any of it. And it's worth pointing out, Jake, that security experts and intelligence experts we've spoken with have said, look, the technology out there to use a remote control gun to do something like this exists. But this was likely done in person because of the nature of the target and how sensitive an operation like this would have been. Uh, Oren, obviously Israel considers uh, a nuclear weapons armed Iran to be uh, an existential threat. And that's, of course, the the context of all this. Um, What are your intelligence and security experts in the Israeli government telling you about whether or not the Israeli government actually ordered this hit on this nuclear uh, scientist? The Israeli government has gone completely quiet on that, and many of the sources we normally turn to are also quiet on that. That's not a surprise. They don't want to invite any sort of retaliation from Iran, especially seems like, since it seems Iran is already determined to retaliate at this point. And there are a number of options there. First, perhaps from something like Hezbollah in Lebanon, though that seems unlikely because Hezbollah has not gotten involved between Israel and Iran. A response could come from Syria, or it could be a response against Israeli embassies, diplomats, or even tourists overseas. And in fact, there was a cable from the foreign ministry that we've learned about that essentially warned, be vigilant and be ready, especially as Israelis are now set to travel to the Gulf with normalization ties there moving forward. All right, Oren Lieberman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our money lead, the New York Times is out with a stinging new report about major U.S. corporations trying to water down legislation that would ban the import of goods made with forced labor In the Xinjiang region of China, the Times cites a recent U.S. government report pointing to Coca-Cola and Nike among the companies suspected of using slave labor to make their products, your sneakers, your sodas. The House of Representatives passed a bill this year to stop all American companies from using forced labor. Nike and Coke have both said they don't use forced labor in their supply chains. Mind you, Nike, of course, has been at the forefront of promoting social justice in its ads, including Black Lives Matter. Coca-Cola donated the land in Atlanta to build the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, which obviously strongly condemns slavery in all forms. Perhaps it's time for some corporate leaders from Coca-Cola and Nike to visit that museum. With 267,000 deaths in the U.S. from COVID, we'd like to take the time to remember one of the nurses on the front lines of this pandemic. 
Brittany Palomo was 27 years old. She was an ER nurse in Texas. She started her nursing career just before the pandemic hit South Texas. Her stepdad, Robert, remembers how they bonded over sports. She really got into baseball, became a loyal Cubs fan. Her family is not sure where she got coronavirus, but they know it took her from them way too soon. May her memory be a blessing, of course. Uh, And we want to end the show with some happy news. The lead is welcoming its newest member uh, to the team. Uh, Her name is Sophia uh, Tahera. She was born uh, early uh, this morning. Uh, She is the daughter uh, of our producer, Veronica Batista. We're wishing her and her mother and dad uh, all the best. Uh, Thanks so much. The news on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.